Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. This is part two, and... You don't absolutely have to listen to part one to get part two, but it would probably be helpful. I do have a little bit of a short primer on what leather contests and what leather events are all about, but basically think a lifestyle convention with a lot of people wearing the epidermi of deceased animals (laughs) And lots of love and lots of acceptance and lots of exploration. And it's pretty interesting and pretty exciting. The thing about this particular keynote is that it's the first speech I have delivered at a leather convention in many, many years. I'm going to say probably and possibly even since I had my step down from International Ms. Leather in 2011. I don't know if I've done another keynote speech at a leather event. Possibly not. Anyway... Here's the thing. I've been invited to do speeches in many different places under many different circumstances. And my rule is I do not create, draft, and write speeches. I always speak extemporaneously. And that sounds insane, and I believe that it is. And it's part of my methodology for speaking to the public. I truly want to be in the moment and to really feel what's in the room and what needs to be said then. For me personally, if I come in with an agenda, I don't necessarily know what needs to be said in that moment. And that's part of what I do. And so I had a year (laughs) from the time when Tomo, who runs the South Plains Leather Fest, invited me to come and provide a keynote speech at the end of the convention and when the convention actually occurred. So I had a year of going, what the fuck, what the fuck am I going to fucking say? What am I going to bring down? What's going to come out of my mouth? I have no fucking idea. Well, you're about to hear what the fuck came out of my mouth. It's here on this recording. What is not on the recording, and I think I will talk about this more next week, was the unbelievable amount of love and support and just this tidal wave of acceptance and welcoming that I received from the folks who were in the room that morning. And that was a miracle. Because so many of the faces in that room, more than I had seen before, were other black women. And more than that, other black women who identified as submissives, who identified as people engaging in consensual master-slave relationships, who embraced me in a way that I had never experienced before in my life. So that's going to be a big, heavy one. While I did my best to grab the audio for these, please note, it is going to be a little bit rough in places. My wonderful, delightful, competent sound engineer, Cody, has done the very best that he can, but there's only so much you can do when the person who's recording uh, has a mic that's not quite plugged in all the way and there's a lot of ambient noise. So please bear with us and hopefully you'll get the gist. But I'm inviting you today to listen to my keynote speech from the South Plains Leather Fest 2023. Why the fuck am I up at any hour before noon? Why am I even fucking here? 
When Tomo called me last year, my knee-jerk reaction was to say yes. And since then, I have been saying why. <laughs> why? Why did I say yes? What was I thinking? And because of the sort of person I am, the why started reverberating through the rest of my life. I not only started thinking about why I said yes, but why was I even still here? So many times over the past two and a half plus decades, I have wondered why I'm still here. And when I was asked to keynote, I remembered the words of one of my very first mentors in storytelling. And what she told me was this when I was trying to get up the ovaries to talk in public about BDSM as a theatrical performance. And I said, but people can't relate to that. How am I going to talk about wanting to be a slave? How am I going to talk about wanting to be whipped that's so specific to my story and potentially alienating to other people? And what she said was the more specific your story is, the greater the number of people who will relate to it. You can attempt to tell the quote-unquote perfect universal story and no one will click in. But if you talk about that one time you fell into your darkest hole and how you climbed out of it, that is universal. That is for everyone. And so today I'm going to give you my why. And to start off with the why I'm still here, I should tell you how I got here. Back in 1993, I was living in Los Angeles and fresh out of a relationship. And I had just come through a very lively and active hoe phase. <laughs> and this was before the internet, so you motherfuckers out here like clicking on Tinder and swiping. We had to be a little bit more proactive to get the D back in the day. So I'm out at a bar, I look across the bar, I see some guy, I get the eye contact, I get the like, some enchanted evening moment, because here's a white man with a fine ass. You don't see that every day. He's playing pool, that fine ass is suddenly in my airspace, and I'm like, well, this is unacceptable, excuse me. Your ass is in my face. And he swings around and says, oh, love, I'm sorry. I didn't mean to put my bum in your face. And I'm like, woo-hoo-hoo. <laughs> he introduces himself. Second problem, he's a musician. Third problem, he's on tour. He's just playing support guitar for someone else. He's not the lead act. Who is the lead act, may I ask? He's like, oh, you heard of Van Morrison? <laughs> uh, well, I've heard of him. <laughs> so on our first date, we're at this very expensive hotel suite in Los Angeles, hanging out with none other than actual Van Morrison, who, side note, is literally this big. <laughs> So he spent the evening like getting very well acquainted with them titten. <laughs> Halfway through the night, this young man who I just met drags me into the bedroom of the suite, throws me up against the wall, leans into my ear and says, you've been a very bad girl. <laughs> Do you know what happens to bad little girls? 
Yes. No. I don't know what happens, what happens? And to this day, that click as a belt starts being unbuckled has a little bit of a spicy trigger in my head. I found out that apparently bad little girls get their clothes ripped off a belt wrapped around their neck while they're choked and their ass gets beaten and they're fucked from behind. Who knew? And so despite the fact that this individual and I had literally 17 days to form this affair between Los Angeles and San Francisco before he flew back to London and back to his girlfriend and back to his life, my next why was to figure out why I was living in the U.S. and not with this person. And I spent the next few years trying to get to him because he saw something in me that had never been touched before. After that morning when he beat the shit out of me and fucked the crap out of me, my first impulse was not to file a charge. <laughs> my first impulse was to get him some fucking coffee. <laughs> that motherfucker's laundry was taken care of. And I just knew that this part of myself that had opened and blossomed was because this one person was so special that he saw it and drew it out of me. And I spent the next year realizing that it wasn't about him. It was mine. That feeling that he had unlocked was me. It was my journey that was just beginning. And I'd heard of BDSM and I'd heard of kink and I'd seen Leathermen growing up in New York, but I assumed this was something that gay white men did because that was all I saw. And so when I started investigating kink and BDSM, when I was getting on to Usenet, <laughs> when the sound of foreplay was <laughs> And the kids are like, what is that? And at the time, I was having sex with a couple of rocket scientists, and since they invented the internet, the second thing they used it for after math was fucking. <laughs> and I discovered a few kinky chat rooms. And then I started sharing my curiosity with other folks, and the minute people found out that I was black, the second thing they would say is, have you heard of Vi Johnson? And I was like, you just assume that we all know each other? <laughs> and what I realized once I got hepped to that jive was that I was not the first little black girl to fantasize about being a slave. The guilt and the shame and the horror I felt because of the fantasies that had blossomed within me in the past year started to fall away because I realized that I was not alone. I realized that my fantasies, though they felt transgressive, and though I was certain that at any moment the ghost of Dr. King would appear at the foot of my bed, talking about, we didn't march on Washington. 
so you can lay there wagging it to the thought of some white man. Beating your ass, girl. And I'm like, but Dr. King, it's so good, it's so good. You know Angela would have my back, though. <laughs> and so I thought, okay, if I am not the only one, this must be okay. This was the excuse I gave myself. And so the first moment of me starting to accept who I am and who I wanted to be was realizing that I was not alone. This was my first inkling of what community could do for me. You could make me feel less like a mutant freak. You could help me to feel less like a transgressive loner. You could help me to feel less like I was a fuck up. And so that was my first why. Why am I coming? Because I feel shame and loneliness and I need to see myself reflected in the eyes of other humans who I can trust. And so I jumped in and I decided this is what I am going to do. This is who I am. I went to my first munch. I met the people whose names were on the covers of the books I had been studying. I came into the scene in San Francisco. So there was a shit ton of motherfuckers out there who had been on the cutting edge of doing what I wanted to do. And I felt like I had finally come home. And I would be loved and accepted by all the perverts who would just see my kink and embrace it and love it. And wouldn't it be wonderful? And then reality hit. When we talk about leather family, a lot of people like to gloss over the fact that families are a mess. My owner, who is here somewhere, my beloved, who is uh, from Austria, and there's a saying in, in, is it Austrian, sir, or is it just German? Who goes to the family, the family saying? Yes, I don't know. Is it is an Austrian poet. And this Austrian poet stated the following, he who remains within the family shall perish there. <laughs> and what's fascinating about that is that you can take it one of many ways. Yeah. And it's beautiful and it's lovely and it's very true because I immediately began discovering that not all fetishes are created equal. Not all perverts are created equal. When I came into the scene in San Francisco, I would see on the regular two other black faces. And that was it for years. But I stayed because I said, if I come and I leave, who will someone see? When another brown face finally lands here and they don't see anyone, they might leave, they might bounce because they don't feel seen or represented. So I stayed despite the fact that for a while I was literally the only one at the munch. I was the only raisin in the rice pudding at dungeon party after dungeon party. But then I started seeing other brown faces and I started feeling like, yes, I am here, I belong. I had my first DS relationship. I jumped right into a hardcore, hard-ass, 24-7, multi-slave, high-protocol leather household because what else do gifted kids do? I guess we have some recovering gifted children here in the house. We were trained in formal etiquette protocol tea service, and we had a formal leather tea 
prior to Folsom Street Fair one year. And a woman who had been my slave mentor, who I looked up to so tremendously, was one of the guests of honor. And after the tea, she sent a thank you note to my trainer. I was not yet fully collared to him, praising him for the party and also praising him for my service. She wrote that she was so delighted to see how I had grown in my service. And that month, during our annual, our monthly house meeting, he pulled out the note and read it and said, this is a problem. Your service should be invisible. The fact that people are calling out and noticing your service means that it is too ego-driven. You need to be silent and invisible. You need to be the invisible hand of my will. And I was crushed, but I was dedicated, and I said, I'm going to do that. I'm going to find ways to pull my energy in so I am not disrupting the flow of those around me. And when I spoke to my friend, this slave, the woman who had written this note, and I told her what had happened, and I begged her to help me shrink my energy so that I would not be too much in the room, she said, Mo, if you were kneeling in a corner, draped in a sheet, facing the wall, people would know you were there. The, one of the Bibles in that house was Mama Vi's book. To, I'm going to fuck this up. Why can't I remember it? Because I'm old. To love, to serve, to obey. Love, obey, serve. This was one of the guideposts in my early MS training. And when I read that book and I closed the final chapter, I was like, ha, 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 fuck this. I am clearly not a slave because this shit is crazy. And about a year into my service, I was invited to teach at Black Rose. It was my first big event. And I was so thrilled because Mama Vi was going to be there. And I'll be able to tell her to her face, thank you for letting me know that I was not a slave. And so I saw her in the hallway, Mama Vi, and, they, and she's like, oh, Mo, good to see you. I'm like, why do you know who I am? This is first I learned the power of the dark side. <laughs> And I said, Mama Vi, I want to thank you for your book and for your writing so clearly. This is something that is integral to my household and my development. But what you helped me to see is that I'm not a slave. And this way I can just focus on my kink and my fetishes. And she stood there quietly and said, tell me more about that. <laughs> and as I shared my story, she eventually stopped me and said, slavery is not about what you do. It's who you are. It's your heart. And when you have the heart of a slave, you need to find the master who sees your heart. And I was like, okay, well, that's fine. That's fine, but whatever. I was really not able to hear and absorb it because my head was still so stuck in wanting to be what someone else wanted. And this is when I began to realize that perhaps there needed to be some other way. Perhaps I needed to find some other way to be a slave. My lovely mentor said to me, you know, not every slave is for every master. Find the master who sees who you are today and loves that, Mo. Find the master who sees the multitude within you and sees how to utilize it and exploit it, hopefully, Joyous exploitation is what I seek. And between the day that I was released from service 
And the day that I was handed the contract by my owner, there were 18 years. I say this not to scare the new subs who are afraid of never finding love. I say this to scare the new subs who are never finding, scared of never finding love. You might not take 18 years, but if you do, your journey will be magnificent because I spent those years living. I did not spend those years waiting. Back in the early 2000s, it was scandalous to announce you had collared yourself. People looked at you like you were a little psycho upstart motherfucker and how dare you? How dare you? How dare you remove the power from the dominant? How dare you undermine their authority? How dare I take ownership of myself? <laughs> Watch me. Well into that 18 years, I attended the Master Slave Conference down in uh, Baltimore. Is it Baltimore? D.C.? College Park? Fuck all y'all. <laughs> need to make a decision down there. It's a fucking dumpster fire, that whole thing. God damn. I was attending this conference. It was during my title year, and it had been stressful already, just with travel. And I saw that Master Skip Chasey was presenting a class. It was entitled, I believe, The Servant Master. Is he here in the room yet? Master Skip? What is the title of that class, sir? The Servant Master. And I had never seen those words in that order before, and I was mesmerized. And I really wanted to attend that class, so I did. And as Master Skip was sharing his ideology of what mastery and slavery looked like, one of the things he said was the following. And please hit me if I miss, I mean, like, hit me like the Negro African-American sense of hit me back, not come up and strike me. <laughs> I just want to explain for the Caucasians. <laughs> Let me know if <laughs> I misquote you seriously, but per my recollection, his description of mastery and slavery were active roles that mastery was active, slavery were active, and if you were not actively in the process of mastery or slavery, you were then a wannabe. And I sat there in my chair, gut-punched, going, Whoa. so if I don't have a master, I'm a wannabe? Like, I don't count, I don't matter? And I started shaking, because here was someone who I respected so profoundly and kind of wanted to be like, hey, Master Skip, who had just told me I was a wannabe. And I sat there in the back of the class for a good three or four minutes thinking, what should I do? Should I jump up and say something? And I locked and froze because I was just too busy crying. And I left the room and I went upstairs and I got on Facebook and I was like, I don't know what to do. Someone said a thing. <laughs> Later that afternoon, we had the slave circle as we did here today and well, what stays in the slave circle, what says in the can I say what I said in the slave circle, Mama Lai? Thank you. I brought this up. I shared that I was so wound up by what Master Skip had said. And then some other people came up to me and said, you should tell him, tell him. I'm sure he would be open to hearing. And I'm like, I'm going to go up to Master Skip and be like, you said a thing that hurt my feelings. When I got my ovaries together, I was like, if not me, who? Caught him in the hallway. Master Skip, I'm Alina. 
we chat a little bit and I said, I, I hope you have a few minutes. I just need to share with you how something you said in your class today really impacted me in a way that was very difficult. And I told him what, what had happened. And he said, first, I want to apologize because I hear what you're saying. And that was not my intention. His sensation, his, his ideology of the word wannabe was actually want to be as in someone who aspires to be. And I was like, okay, well then just say that, sir. <laughs> like aspirant, acolyte, there's other words that the, the wannabe thing is like the dude who bought seven floggers off of Amazon, clipped them onto his kilt and then whirls into the dungeon flogging everybody. Like that's a wannabe, not someone who is aspiring towards the thing. And he heard that. And at the end of that conversation, we hugged. And I was amazed and I felt so good. And the next morning at a breakfast, much like this one, Master Skip got up and the first thing he said was, I want to address something that happened yesterday. And offered an apology to any submissive slave dominant or master who was unowned or did not have anyone in their service if they had taken offense or had been hurt by his words the other day. And I sat there going, holy shit, this is why the fuck I'm here. To see someone who I respect, who has an opinion that differs from mine, but to come together and to exchange ideas and for us to each see eye to eye on where we are. And for him to treat me with such respect, someone who has so many years on me, so many more years in the scene. To be treated with such respect and kindness and transparency. He didn't have to do that. He did not. And this to me spoke volumes as to the why. And this to me spoke volumes as to why it is critical for slaves and submissives to not assume the position all the fucking time. And as he opened the floor to questions, I stood up and I wanted to say, so what advice do you have for the wannabes? <laughs> but I was still feeling too squishy. So I said, Master Skip, I would love to hear what advisement you would have for those of us who are still open in our search for our masters, for our slaves. And he said, to my understanding, to my practice, my belief is when the student is ready, the master shall appear. And I'm Zal. So you're saying I'm not ready? <laughs> you trying to tell me after 18 motherfucking years, I'm not ready. So clearly it's my fault. I don't have a dominant. Then my higher power stepped in and said, let's open the Melina Lee Williams book of life. Let's see when the fuck you were ready. Shoot. Do, 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 do. <laughs> <laughs> While you were still an active alcoholic, you were ready to be owned. While you were still in your first few years of recovery, trying to figure out how to pay your bills, you were ready to be owned. While you were still coming in and out, trying to look for a job, trying to put together your social life, trying to get to a meeting every day. That's when you were ready to be owned. 
And I started looking at my journey in that instant as not waiting, but living. I was not waiting for my owner, for my master, but I was living. And if slash when they found me, great. And what was amazing is that nine days after that event, I was invited to another event where I met the dominant who would be mine for the next year and a half. And I thought to myself, wow, wow, that motherfucker was right. <laughs> Clearly I'm ready. And I had a lovely year and a half where I grew and prepared and got to the point where I was ready for my own owner. And do you know how I knew I was ready? I walked away from a dynamic that did not serve me. I had to that point been single for like 15 years and boy was I hungry. And I found a lovely Dom and we had an amazing connection and it was long distance so it wasn't something that was dear to my heart because I was like, I can't get too close, it's long distance, I can't get too close, he's so poly, I can't get too close, etc., etc. But he made room in his life for me uniquely and perfectly as a submissive. That was my place. He was able to give me my place even in the chaos of his life. And for a year and a half, that worked beautifully. And then when it did not work anymore, and I had to hold him to account and say, you have not lived up to your end of the bargain, sir. And to hear him say, you're right. I'm not giving this relationship what it deserves. And I'm like, okay, so say you're going to do it. He did not say he was going to do it. And therefore, what I had to do was to take back my collar and proceed on with my life. And I tried and I struggled. And over the next few years, there were some very difficult moments. There were some moments that made me question if I had a place in this community. There were moments when people who had given me their word went back on it in ways that harmed me. There were times when people refused to support anti-racist efforts. There were times when I reached out to the pillars of the community and watched them crumble before me because they would not take a stand against blackface. Because they would not say that a leather bar has no business with a blackface act inside it. These people to whom I had given so much respect and love over the years declined to support us in those days. And I wondered why I was still here. Clearly, I did not matter enough. Clearly who I was as a black woman was irrelevant to the amusement and delight of some leatherman in a bar. And I started to fade. People with whom I had worked so closely were noted using language of hatred and ugliness. And I felt that my place was closing. I did not need to be here. I struggled to make the most meager of livings in this community, just to have my bills paid. I was told I was arrogant and greedy and selfish and that we do this from love, not from money. I was told that the most sacred thing to do is to volunteer. Apparently the most sacred thing you can do for the leather community is to break yourself in the bank. That is how you show love. And because I refused to do that, I was not leather. And so I said, you know what? Perhaps that is true. Why am I here? Why am I still here? And at the end of 2013, in early December, I was in the shower. I like to take showers in the dark. You should try it. It's so awesome. I feel like I'm in a rainforest. 
And I was showering in the dark and I was communicating with my higher power. And I said, my savings account's getting real skinny. I have another couple of months before I need to find a job. I'm going to make a deal with you. Thankfully, I have a relationship with Lord Ganesha. You can bargain with Hindu deities. It's awesome. <laughs> I said, Lord, I'm going to keep trying to do this till the end of this year. December 31st is the last day I'm going to consider myself involved in leather and BDSM. I'm going to dust off my banking resume and go back to finance. I'll be fine. I can make money there and I won't have the heartbreak of constantly feeling like I don't have a place at the table. Unless you send me the owner, the dom, the master who can take care of all of my needs. You send me the dominator master who has the financial and emotional wherewithal to completely support me as I am right now today. Otherwise, I'm out. Careful what you pray for. <laughs> Six days later, I got a message on OkCupid. <laughs> lovely, lovely message. Checked all the boxes. Indicated he had read my profile said something nice about my profile, asked a question about my profile, said a little bit about himself, gave a little bit of a teaser hint. And then at one point I had said in my ad that I really liked accents and he, in his response said, I do have an Austrian accent. And I was like, oh, I should have specified. <laughs> I was just like, damn, that's not, that's not like the sexy, but okay, whatever. And he'd mentioned that he was a composer. And uh, the reason he didn't have his photo in the, in the little thing was because he had some notoriety and, and was a little bit worried about that. And I said, well, you know what? I'll give you a pass this time, but I would like to see how you look. So 10 minutes later, I get back an email with three of the worst selfies I have ever <laughs> fucking seen in my life. Upshot, chin down, frowning at the camera, hair in his face. I'm like, what the fuck? <laughs> then I listened to some of his shit. I said, let me listen to some of your music. Because I said, if I don't like your shit, we're not even going on this first date. Listen to some of his shit. I was like, this is weird. I'm not sure what he's doing, but I'm having a whole emotional roller coaster ride here. Let's give him a shot. Let's give dude a shot. 60 years old, fresh off the plane, never done an MS relationship before, accosted me over dinner. <laughs> and I'm like, well, let's see what happens next. <laughs> what happens next was like four hours of the most intense. I literally at one point like had my foot on the back of his head like, stop, stop, I need a break. I need some Gatorade, I need some hydration. There may be issues with race, class, sex, and gender, but you want to have your shit gobbled like a neck bone, you find a horny old white man. <laughs> Not a horny old white man, I'm like, yes, yes. <laughs> Mind you, this man who has never done MS says, I've written up a contract for you to look at. I'm like, you did what? 
wow, that's, that's some balls right there. Then I started reading the contract. It said shit like, I work internationally most of the year. You will need to not work so that you can be at my service when I need you. Your country seems to have a problem with health care. I will provide that for you. You mentioned that you have had trouble with your teeth. I will fix them. You mentioned that your place to live is expiring soon. Here are the keys to my house. This is the shit that people are like, are you crazy? But the student was ready. The master appeared and gave me the keys. And you, sir, are the third why. You are why I'm here. You are why I stayed. Your journey was just, please don't jump up and hug me, please. <laughs> I was just like, oh, he's gonna jump up and hug. I was ready to leave, but then a brand new light shone in my life and he had done none of this. He had met none of you. He had not had his heart broken. He had not felt the incredible joy of walking into a dungeon. These were things he had not experienced. And as his slave, if I were to be his slave, it was my responsibility to open that path to him. It was my responsibility to take back my birthright. It is my right to be here. I have a right to be here and to be who I am not just to write an obligation, a duty. And my final why came today, looking into the eyes of every single brown face here. You are the why. You are why I stayed all of these years with a broken heart. You are why I stayed all of these years unsure that I had a space. I am here for you and I am not fucking leaving because I can't leave you alone. I don't want anyone to ever feel the loneliness and the shame that I felt about being a black slave. My birthright is so strong. My DNA, my ancestry goes back to the second oldest group of identifiable humans. The information I have in my body, you need, you need me here. I need me here. I'm here for the brown faces. I'm here for the slaves. I'm here for the slaves who wait. I'm here for the owners who are unsure they can lead because they have mental health issues, because they're weak, because they don't know if they can do it on their own. I'm here for the masters who need help. I'm here for the people who have ever felt like there was no place at the table for them. When Tomo called me and invited me to this event, I said, I said immediately yes, but immediately the no came up as well because I said, why would I go back to that? Why would I go back to a place where I have to look in the faces of heartbreak? 
because looking in the face of heartbreak reminds you how far you have come. Facing the demons, facing the pain. Is that not what we do in SM? Why can we not take our emotional pain and turn it into pleasure the same way that we turn physical pain into pleasure? Why can we not take our differences that shove us apart and say, yes, those two are beautiful. This was the first time in my leather life I felt not only welcome at an event, but right at an event, right from the moment I walked in. I felt right as a leather woman. I felt so many times I couldn't even call myself that because people would spit it back in my face. No one spit back in my face once this weekend. And for that, I am grateful to each and every one of you. Toma, what you are doing is changing the face of leather for the better. What you are doing is making it so that the words are manifest. They have gone from words and bullshit in the ether to a true family. A real family with people you can rely on, people who love you, and creepy Uncle Larry, you know you don't leave alone with the kids. <laughs> we are all here. And when I say I love you, this is not some hyperbolic bullshit. I fucking love you guys. I may have never seen you before, and I look to you with love. I see each and every one of you as humans capable of the most amazing passion, the passion to take darkness and give it life, the power to take pain and make it gorgeous, the power to take slavery and make it liberating, the power to take slavery and make it liberating. Y'all are some conjuring magical ass motherfuckers in here. You're doing it. You're fucking doing it every day. And when you go out into the world, drag a gallon of this with you. The benefit that has come to me from being in leather in the default world is unimaginable. And I charge you, each and every one of you, with taking some of this light into the world. Take it out. The world needs it. They need us. They need to see how we love. They need to see how we heal. They need to see how we heal. Can I just ask everyone to join in taking three deep breaths? You're magic. 
You're magic. You are beautiful. Celestial, magical, leather folk. Live in that. Live in that. Live in that. Thank you. Thank you. been listening to all that and mo thanks so much for spending your precious precious time with me today my podcast is produced by cody crab theme music by georg friedrich haas as performed by marcus weiss and i look forward to spending time with you again really soon (laughs) 